Me and America, part two. America. Donald Trump doesn't have a natural smile. Donald Trump doesn't have a natural smile. He only has the phony smile that some people use when they pose for photographs. He doesn't use that smile much either. He never smiles the smile that people have when they don't know what they are smiling, the smile people have when they are amused or feel friendly or are touched by something. Donald Trump is scared shitless, not only at the awesome responsibility of the presidency for which he is totally unprepared. He's scared of everything. He's so scared that he's never had a waking moment of his life that other people were anything more than an audience to him. He's never been intimate with anyone. Even his wives and children have only existed to adore him. He says he is a germaphobe. He has never touched or even been touched by another person since he was very small. His father was a Klansman and his mother was the bride of Frankenstein. He inherited her hairstyle, which, had been, which would have been bizarre in any generation. His hair is a gesture of emotional honesty and an illusory magician's act of a public persona. His hair says, I am a freak. Don't touch me. Donald Trump may well be a ghost. All presidents before Trump no matter how superficially awkward they have been, have lusted for the job. They all want the power to do good or ill. Anthony Hopkins has this great moment in the movie Nixon. The character Nixon has arrived at the podium to accept the 1968 presidential nomination. Hopkins smiled a subtle but fierce smile and narrowed his eyes with satisfaction and anticipation as he openly accepted the cheers of the convention delegates. Hopkins Nixon was receiving something that he had wanted his whole life. The character had a dimension beyond the paranoid, cerebral, and disconnected Nixon that we are accustomed to thinking about. It took a great Shakespearean actor to find that kind of insight into the nature of a person and the people who seek the presidency. For them... Power, or at least the anticipation of it, is a source of joy. Our worst public officials have always been ambivalent about doing their jobs. Dan Quayle wanted to be a professional golfer. George W. Bush was still trying to figure himself out when he was in his 50s. There's no shame in that. So was I. So he had his daddy's friends buy him the White House so he could see if that would work. There's some shame in that. It didn't. Warren Buffett said he isn't going to leave his kids any money. I see the wisdom. It's a curse. Money isolates. Life is about living life. The struggle to survive. The struggle to create. It's what we humans are wired to do. Money allows some of us to avoid that suffering and joy flying around alone in their personal airliners, or living alone in the penthouses of gouty skyscrapers with their names and letters five stories high, shouting from the side of the building. The Trump inauguration concert on the National Mall looked like a scene from the movie Nashville. The actor John Voight hosted. John Voight is crazy. Who knows what made him that way? Maybe it's his acting process. He's given some great performances. Maybe he's like a boxing champion who was ultimately mentally destroyed by his drive that accomplished his excellence in the ring. John Voight has fearlessly tested his mind and emotions and spirit in many films through the years. The self-abuse in the service of art has finally caught up with him. Voight said in his opening remarks that Trump had been relentlessly attacked 
when all he wanted to do was make America great again, and that he sure didn't need the job of president. It was such an odd statement on the occasion of an inauguration. Voigt was delivering lines written by the worst writer he ever worked with, Trump. For a person supposedly consumed with making America great again, Trump spends a great deal of time focused on himself. Trump self-consciously walked across a vast expanse in an attempt at a dramatic entrance, conceived by the worst director of all time. He didn't look at the crowd, whose cheers did nothing to cheer him. His, wa- his wife walked with him, but he didn't seem to know she was there. They looked like two extremely stiff strangers, walking next to each other on a very wide and empty promenade, with no particular inclination to be introduced to each other. The scene truly deserved to be described as surreal. And at that moment, we were entering the surreal presidency of Donald Trump. Presidents are always a reflection of the American people, whose character and changes are demonstrated every four years. We were a very sad people in 2016, afraid of life and disconnected from reality. We wanted undeserved recognition for excelling at things we don't know how to do. We talk a lot about hard work, but we don't do any. We are so preoccupied with ourselves as individuals that we don't see the world burning around us. We don't know how to smile. We are terrified facing challenges that we are too ill-equipped to deal with, and now it is too late. We selfishly want to get what we have coming as individuals, but even when we do, we can't enjoy it because it's impossible to escape the dystopian nightmare of society as a whole. We careen from disaster to disaster, unconcerned about the real damage being done, and obsessed by what the other dystopians think of us in the meantime. We are ciphers, completely disconnected from the light of our true natures in the depths of our soul, and too lazy, ignorant, and disinterested to even go look for that light. Reason, compassion, and real imagination are too much trouble for us. Why bother We sit in squalor in an opioid haze, addicted to sensation, and concerned with nothing else but the sensation. We're not a tragedy because we've never been much to begin with. We didn't fall from grace. We wallow in the slop we were born to sleep in. Or maybe I am just describing the pathetic cipher our wealthy masters have forced upon us because they hold us in utter contempt. And maybe we are complicit in the state of affairs because we let them do it. Perhaps we have been innocent for too long, and it has now come to this. There is nothing to fear with Trump because there is nothing inside Trump. But there is plenty to fix outside of Trump. We can't accept his leadership simply because we are told by people who hate us and profit from our suffering to do so. A big part of life, with the force of natural law, is people telling you that you don't deserve what you want. Your defiance and the education and satisfaction that comes from that defiance and your struggle for independence is life itself. Smile. Watching TV, a Trump in the crowd. Les Moonves, head of CBS, said in 2015, the Trump's ascendancy might not be good for America, but it's great for CBS. Moonves said the people needed 60 Minutes Colbert and NFL football, which they manipulated so much as a brand that they bled the life and the interest out of it every day. The possibility of someone like Trump coming to power became real as far back as 1958, when CBS chairman Bill Paley 
moved Edward R. Murrow's Masterpiece News Series, See It Now, out of prime time to Sunday afternoons. Hard news had to be removed from the center ring to make room for fluff, and Murrow had offended too many powerful people when he took down the malicious Senator Joseph McCarthy, who was advised by Trump mentor Roy Cohn. This isn't a coincidence. It's a tradition. Paley had a similar, if not as stark line as Moonves. The scheduling switch was not as good for America as primetime Murrow, but it was great business and still was socially responsible. See It Now would have a smaller audience, but would retain its voice at CBS and would also retain its great Democratic influence. Eventually, in a matter of months, See It Now was canceled in the new time slot as well. The network and Murrow, for different reasons, tired of the practice of giving equal time to every charlatan and bully that See It Now exposed with its investigative journalism. Even more importantly to CBS, Sunday afternoon turned into a network profit center like every other moment of our collective lives. The public airwaves of commercial networks rarely, if ever, broadcast anything motivated purely for the public interest anymore, and haven't for a long time. Moonves doesn't even have to try, as Paley did, to seem responsible to please his shareholders or the public that falls asleep in front of his shows while searching for distraction, usually in vain. Of course it's all about the money. What else is there? Ilya Kazan and Bud Schulberg prophetically saw a Trumpish phenomena on the horizon in 1957 in their great film, A Face in the Crowd. A charismatic drifter, Lonesome Rhodes, played by Andy Griffith, great, and a far cry from Sheriff Taylor and Matlock, is discovered by a TV exec, Patricia Neal. She sees his talent as an engaging personality and eventually more powerful executives give Rhodes his own shows on TV. The same dynamic that gave us benign and wonderful things, like the work of Carol Burnett, also has a dark and ominous side. Politicians see Rhodes' potential to sell more than soap. The networks gave Rhodes a phony corporate imprimatur to talk politics and values. And that is also the dark side of democracy. We all can speak up, but we all can't distinguish the serious and the sincere from manipulation. Civic discourse becomes marketing. Citizenship becomes viewership. Whoever has the most money and the biggest microphone wins. Jefferson said democracy won't work with an uneducated populist. Our democracy isn't working. The drifter con man gets drunk with his new and phony power. Turns out, like most criminal lowlifes, the movie introduces Rhodes in a small-town jail on a vagrancy charge, charming the other inmates, singing clever songs and playing a guitar. Rhodes is a fascist. Rhodes gets drunk on the power of being able to manipulate uneducated people to think, do, and say whatever he wants. I saw an article recently that debated whether Trump was a fascist or just a con artist. He's both. All fascists are con artists. They are grifters that don't want to work. They don't want to put in the serious study and thought that is required to really create and to solve problems. It is so much easier and emotionally satisfying for fascist bums to kill and destroy everyone and everything they don't like. Corporate TV has always been a home to con men, from the Sharpies of the 50s quiz show scandals to the shouting infomercials in the middle of our contemporary nights. Bullshit artistry has dominated what we watch and listen to. TV discovered Trump's crude charisma in the 1980s, when he was blowing a fraction of the money his father made, building up properties in Queens. That's what his father did, build properties in Queens. Trump blew it on things like the United States Football League and made some of it back by building his own brand. As early as 1988, 
network news decision started asking Trump questions about government as, and culture as if he had ever demonstrated that he knew anything about either. Lonesome Robes went down when his comments on an open microphone revealed to his rude followers that he was playing them for fools. Maybe something like that will take down Trump. His fascism doesn't seem to bother his legion of dummies at all. And what do we do with the shows presented to us by the Moonves of the world that are offered with crocodile tears, bad for America, but good for business? Turn them off? Success in the Alps. I'm having coffee with Paula and I ask her something. Honey, you know that guy who flew the plane, his plane into the Alps? Yeah. I get that he was depressed and mentally ill and suicidal. But why do you think he killed all those other people? To be remembered. To be remembered? Why? His, his girlfriend left him. What does that have to do with being remembered? I also think he was losing his vision, responded Paula, and was going to have to give up flying. So he lost the woman he, quote, loved, whatever that meant to him, and he's losing his career. Paula's subtle Socratic method takes hold. I continue, and he sees being married and having a good career as success? So his mental illness is really the mental illness of the Western world? particularly the Western world influenced by American culture, success, looking happy, seeming well-regarded and useful as the goal of life, instead of being genuinely loving and dedicating to doing, dedicated to doing genuine good work, no matter how it's regarded. And if you can't get the approval you want to insanely feel that you are immortal, you hate the people that you ridiculously granted the power to either give or not give that approval to you, and you hurt them deeply so that they know you were there, and they forget you as soon as the next violent whack job comes along? Who, whoever talks about Dick Cheney anymore, who was once so powerful and unlovable? It's a crazy, suicidal, homicidal American world. And the sun streams into our living room as I enjoy my coffee and we look at the peaceful lake. The clouds of Sils Maria, the self-involvement of the rich in the place where empathy which was. Clouds of Sils Maria is an art firm, art film not art firm. The cloud of the title, the clouds of the title, refers to a natural phenomena in a part of the Swiss Alps. When conditions are favorable, a river of dense mist snakes its way down a significant stretch of mountain valley. The clouds are symbolic in the movie of the reality of aging and the nearly intangible river of life. This picture has all the depth of the Lion King. Paula and I saw this pretentious piece of garbage about bored and boring rich and famous people who create problems for themselves because they can't think of anything else to do at the Renaissance Place Cinema in Highland Park. The filmmakers hoped we would be fascinated by this tale of witless narcissism supported by seemingly endless means. The owner of the movie theater, the owners of the movie theater, catered to our comfort. We sat in very wide, thickly cushioned, leatherish recliners. We were armed with bags of huge popcorn, uh, so large it was previously used at the bags were used at feeding time at the Kentucky Derby, and an industrialized drum full of Coke Zero. And I quickly learned the controls of my chair and reclined to a horizontal position as if I were in a hospital bed. To make another Disney cartoon illusion, I was very comfortable in a very unhealthy way, like the fat, inert space refugees in Wally. Remember that boring, politically correct 90 minutes public service announcement about eco responsibility, healthy eating, exercise, and the humanizing potential of technology? And now, back to today's mind number. 
Clausus Sils Maria can be summed up as the following. Intentional run-on sentence fragment warning my metaphor for the experience of watching this crib. A beautiful young girl who is a personal assistant, lesbian lover, and a Jungian archetypal, archetypal animal figure of past youth to a beautiful middle-aged actress and movie star who is doing a play about a beautiful young actress who is a young, Jungian archetypal animal figure to a beautiful middle-aged actress. The beautiful middle-aged actress played the role of the beautiful young actress 20 years ago. You got that? We are old and young at the same time, and we have to accept the transformation and honor our wisdom and self-understanding while remaining in touch with our energy and spirit while never being able to retrieve our innocence, but replacing it with a solidity, but death is coming, and there is that, and oh my God, I'm tired. This movie should have been called Long Walk for a Short Drink of Water. All of this psychological and spiritual obviousness was accompanied by a travelogue about the Swiss Alps and lots of supporting actors wearing really expensive sweaters. I feel badly for rich people. <laughs> they suffer like everyone else, but they have to make up reasons for the pain, and it's really hard for them because it's hard to be rich and not be a little stupid. Michelle Obama said in 2008 that she wanted to make a big difference early in the Obama presidency when she and her husband were just a few years away from struggling with family budgets and student loans. She predicted that as fame, money, and power grew, she would become isolated from empathy and compassion. She has worked to stay grounded. FDR was a rich man who had heavy braces on his legs that kept him tethered to real problems on the earth. The clouds of Sils Maria are supposed to be metaphors for aging and the passing of time. They are actually metaphors for the tragedy of wealth. The filmmakers float like water vapor through the highest elevations, fantasizing meaningless pain while oblivious to the real agony below. I imagine Studs Terkel interviewing a busboy about his life in one of the 300 scenes in the movie set in incredibly expensive restaurants. That made me feel better along with my feedback of popcorn, my adjustable bed, and my gallon of Diet Coke. Masterpiece, rules don't apply, bombs at the Trump era box office. In other news, dog bites man. Rules don't apply, which opened in November of last year, only earned only two to 2.5 million at the box office for the five day Thanksgiving 2016 holiday weekend. The movie is an unqualified financial disaster. Rules Don't Apply is also a masterpiece. In a year when half the American people elected Donald Trump and most of the other half dithered as to whether they should complain to the Trump voters who made a stupid and immoral mess of our country for at least the next four years, the unpopularity of Rules Don't Apply is not surprising. Rules Don't Apply is about people who love each other and have dreams of creating beautiful things. It's set in a 1950s Hollywood that is, that is exquisitely, exquisitely lit by cinematographer Caleb Deschanel, a world of sincere, romantic yearning. Rules Don't Apply is an ambitious film about ambitious people, but the desires of the movies and its characters are all excellent and fine and good. Rules Don't Apply is an art film released in an America oppressed by commercialism. Everything is a business. Everything is about money. At the rate we are going, the Art Institute in Chicago may close down its exhibits and warehouse its collections in order to expand its gift shop. Yes, Rules Don't Apply is an art film. Art sees the unseen. Art is often created by people that all of my prejudices would tell me to overlook as being incapable of making art. I am fortunate in that I don't have to pay attention to my prejudices, and Warren Beatty is one of those people. Warren Beatty is impossibly good-looking. Is he one of our species? Is he a carbon-based life form? How can he be masculine and pretty at the same time? Yet there he is. I guess a person like this has to be a movie star. But a filmmaker? A writer and director of intelligence, insight, and innovative talent? He is supernaturally handsome and smart. Yes, 
Yes, yes. What is even more improbable about Warren Beatty, I, I wish Darwin were alive to take a look at this guy, he may be the pinnacle of the evolutionary process, is that he is fabulously wealthy, powerful, and successful by just about any measures, and he's also sensitive and pure? Beatty is 79 now, and his true character is revealed. This famous womanizer has been deeply and sweetly in love with every woman, man, and child he has ever known since the day that he came to Hollywood. Rules Don't Apply is a very personal film, a poetic memoir about Beatty's life in pictures. The Hollywood of Rules Don't Apply isn't a glamorous place, a ruthless locale of cultural power, or a fatuous and superficial satirical hick town, as it is often portrayed in other movies and elsewhere. The Hollywood of Rules Don't Apply is a place where hearts yearn for each other, struggle to connect, successfully embrace, or poignantly fail to find fulfillment. Rules Don't Apply would be a great movie if Beatty had spent his entire life in Omaha, Nebraska, and set the film there. Some might jump to compare Rules Don't Apply to Leonardo DiCaprio and Martin Scorsese's The Aviator, because both films are seemingly about Howard Hughes. But Rules Don't Apply isn't about Howard Hughes. Beatty plays a fictional character named Howard Hughes, who is actually a metaphor referencing a part of Beatty's own soul, not the historic figure. Beatty clearly and compassionately Baby loves himself in a way that's the opposite of narcissism. Sees how his wealth and power make him eccentric and distant from other people. He sees how the pain of the failure of his last movie, Town and Country, made him withdraw from the spotlight for the 15 years since he made it. Beatty reveals that all of his glamour and glory, his moments of revelatory success, and he has had so many, are islands in a life sea of anxiety and uncertainty. Beatty, like his Howard Hughes fiction, clearly cherishes his fleeting moments of deep human connection above his, moment, his fleeting moments of career justification and acclaim. The American people weren't ready to embrace a movie from a rich man like Beatty in 2016 after they were inundated with the pronouncements of another rich man who brags about the size of his penis and his ability to grab women's crotches at will. Beatty would have made a much better president than Donald Trump, but he was preoccupied living out his own destiny, making a great, unappreciated film and being a human being. Trump is incapable of making anything great or being human. Neither is America, not right now. The Democrats answered Trump's Make America Great Again slogan by saying, America is great. But it isn't. If America were great, it wouldn't have elected Trump. America has to get to work to get back to the point where it can appreciate a movie like Rules Don't Apply Again. A movie about love, human connection, and creativity. Not petty resentment, crass consumerism, and the ugly ethos of winning. America has a lot of work to do just to get decent again before it is up to being a people ready to celebrate Warren Beatty. America elected a salesman because it wants its ass kissed. Anything but the truth. But as it is written on that Grecian, Grecian urn, truth is beauty and beauty is truth, and the choice of the mass sycophantic craft of marketing over the wonders and challenges of the artful rendering of reality has made our country mentally ill and very ugly right now. America should be committed to a psychiatric outpatient facility at this historic moment. It needs to get its bearings back and give up many things that are very bad for it. Then after a period of recovery, it can return to loving and doing again. The other characters in Rules Don't Apply are also aspects of Warren Beatty's soul. Each member of the cast gives a wonderful performance. Alden Ehrenreich plays a heroic young man who learns the differences between love, lust, and obligation. 
Lily Collins plays a young woman with the courage to figure life out on her own terms. Matthew Broderick plays a frustrated man struggling against his own mediocrity. Great actors are in all the smaller roles. Each part and player illuminate meaningful thought and feeling related to the consideration of what it is to be a human being. Everything is lovely about this movie. It's unhurried pacing, unobtrusive but wise editing, perfectly selected soundtrack, spare and meaningful dialogue, and of course Warren Beatty's invisible direction that leads the audience to his paradisal inner world. The whole film plays like real moments in a well-appreciated life. Beatty infuses the film with an older man's gratitude for the possibilities inherent in the gift of living for several decades on this planet and among other human beings. The gratitude's possible because Beatty took advantage of those opportunities. Trump hates the world because he's never lived in it. Trump has spent his life trying to simultaneously please and rebel against a demanding, literary, literally fascist father. Fascist, fascist is not a hyperbolic world, word choice. Fred Trump admired the Klan. Beatty is not unsympathetic to the psychological impediment in Trump. Beatty's Hughes archetype is obsessed with pleasing his long-dead father. Beatty says in Rules Don't Apply what few admit about the relations between dictatorial fathers and their sons. The tensions never go away, even when the fathers are long gone and the sons have little time left. But Beatty transcended his conflict with his strict Virginia Protestant roots. They were always a part of him. But he added so much more that he found within himself and other people. Like another great poet, Beatty is a multitude. Trump is a cipher. Trump never had the courage to leave his father's smothering embrace. Trump has lived his life in bondage and has never matured into a full human being. America ignores Beatty and is mesmerized by Trump. What does that say after what does that say about America? Paula said after the movie ended, our entire little audience stayed until the last of the credits. I didn't want it to end. Yes, honey, sigh. We now have to return to America the infomercial. A plague of attention deficit disorder ravages the population, and very few have the patience to sit through rules don't apply. Love is found in quiet corners, and lust, greed, ego, and violence dominate everything else. How does the quiet moment when hearts meet stand a chance against the crush of the idolatry of the dollar, the narcissistic exhibition of material possessions, and the loud, violent, predatory screams of the crowd? I am glad we saw Rules Don't Apply before it left the theater in America before it turned into something else unworthy of its name. Immigrants. Ultimately, Trump is just what is lousy about all of us Americans broadcast through a bullhorn. We as people, and myself in particular, have lacked the gratitude to and empathy, compassion, and sensitive awareness for immigrants and their contributions, triumphs, and struggles. I, for one, have no excuse for this. I should have known better. And my only explanation for my behavior is self-involvement. The self-involvement which has allowed me to tolerate and ignore every other rotten element of our often evil society, a society that has enslaved people and committed genocide, oppressed weaker nations through wars of aggression, and allowed the weak to go uneducated and literally die without medical attention on an altar of greed, 
And those are just for starters on our list of transgressions. Our greatest pride is our ideals of democracy and freedom and community and equality. And our greatest failure is how far we will fall from living those ideals in reality. We should know better, and we do know better. We just don't bother. We are too easily occupied with the trivial and the unimportant, that which entertains or flatters us in some way. I confidently extend my guilt and shame to you, since we are, as the slogan says, a nation of immigrants, and I know that you, as immigrants, or the children or descendants of immigrants, should know better too. I don't know the answers, but I know we need entirely new policies towards immig how immigrants are treated as to matters of law and status in our country. We must act with more kindness, appreciation, and, and appreciation for what new Americans bring to our individual and collective lives, and with a much greater sense of fair play and justice. While policies take time to create and implement, attitudes can change in a heartbeat, and our resuscitated hearts should lead us on this one. While we celebrate court rulings and cheer the aggressive satire of Saturday Night Live, the federal government conducts intense immigration enforcement raids across the country. The stated purpose of the raids is to facilitate the deportation of criminals who are also immigrants, but immigrants without criminal records get detained with regularity as well. We have White House leadership that believes in perverted theories regarding racial and ethnic purity, but they aren't the only ones who should feel sh ashamed at the violence and terror behind the rationale of their raids and execution. We are morally culpable. I am morally culpable. Obama deported more people than any other U.S. president. What Trump is doing really isn't new. We have always imported immigrants, either legally or illegally, to do our dirty work, or to do the work of genius that we were ill-equipped to do, like design rockets or conduct symphonies. But we always made sure they were the new kids. We never consistently made them feel welcome or comfortable. We always laughed at their cuisines until we asked them to turn them into gourmet fare. We always made them feel like strangers, toying with them for generations, until we made them feel at home, in their own home. We made sure that they knew that we were better than them and that they had to please us. And recently, in the last 20 years or so, this overtly superior attitude changed. Immigrants were no longer required to display obsequious attitudes towards our seniority in time served on the North American continent. And we resented them for the enforced dignity, sniping that our outward decency was mere political correctness. Now Trump shows us our ugliness in extremis. And we know we want to conform who we are to who we say that we are. And that's good. I repent before all the rest of you sinners for my self-righteousness. Some of my outrage at our evil king should have been reserved for myself. His sins are active ones. Mine are of omission. I was raised by immigrants. Most of the adults that I was around when I was a child were born in Italy or other foreign, mostly, but not exclusively, European countries. My father was involved with amateur soccer. He was a major leader in that community. Every immigrant nationality in Rochester, New York, had a soccer team. Most had a social club as well. Italians, Germans, Portuguese, Greek, Turks, Africans, they were fewer in number, so they had a team that represented their entire continent. Irish, Scottish, Ukrainian, Polish, and other groups that I'm sure that I'm forgetting to mention. Rochester remains a welcoming hub for immigrants. The countries of origin are different, but the energy remains the same. The 2010 census says the big immigrant groups in my hometown are now Jamaican, Southeast Asian, Chinese, Korean, Cuban, and still coming in big numbers after decades and generations rose and fell, the Ukrainians. My father, 
spoke with a thick accent. My mother was a proud Italian cook. The first time I ever saw how adults had fun was at a Portuguese wedding. The first person outside of my family that encouraged me to develop my intelligence through education was a German lady who was a friend of my aunt. The first guys who ever laughed at my jokes outside of my family were Irish and Scottish guys who used to play soccer with my father. I grew up surrounded by warmth and energy. And then I kind of forgot about how I grew up and who loved me as a child. I went to school and law school and then lived a pretty white life. Things came full circle when I started to teach at UIC and remembered my forgotten childhood again. I am in a position now to try to do a little something positive for the people who brought me up, who now sit before me as my students. It's an honor and only right. The day after Trump signed the executive order, commonly called the Muslim ban, that has been temporarily restrained by the courts and awaits Trump's policy response to those decisions, I posted this true anecdote on Facebook. January 27, 2017. I had a new experience today. I was teaching a class of mostly sophomores, managerial communications, and I was showing them how to write a story and make a case to assert their vision of their career. And I'm looking at them. We have a lot of diversity at UIC. Blacks, Muslims, Latinos, Asians, documented and undocumented aliens, every demographic category you can think of. And I started to cry. No warning. Boom. What is going to happen to these kids? I'm teaching them this stuff to help them get their career started. And will they get any sort of chance at all? I got through it and they came around me, comforting me. These beautiful kids. My God. I now realize that this was my moment of awakening regarding the importance of immigrants in my life and my realization of how much I love them. America has always had a schizophrenic view of immigrants. On the one hand, we've romanticized them. Give us, give us your tired, your poor, the Statue of Liberty, Ellis Island, the melting pot, the nation of immigrants. On the other hand, we have mocked and excluded immigrants and treated them horribly or with the indifference that I have described above. I have wasted so much time concerned about nothing. Baby boomers, please tell young people you love. Outright means Nazi. Nazi means scum. They don't know. This, this piece, as a blog post, was discovered by some young apprentice Nazis last week. Over 70 of them read it, and several trolled me online. Heil Hitler. You have succumbed to Jewish propaganda, you old, dumb fuck. You are for the wrong side in World War II, you idiot. We are losing our white nation. If you were born in the late 1940s or in the, or in the 1950s, I'd like you to do a, a patriotic act this holiday season. Tell young people what Nazis are. I was speaking to a student of mine, a very bright and nice guy, young guy around 25 years old or so. He was a veteran. Well, I, I wasn't really speaking to him. I was caught up in one of my standard rants where I explained why I believe that voting for Trump was an immoral act, independent of political beliefs or social, economic, or educational attainment. 
when I got to the part about the unforgivable moral outrage of the despicable Trump campaign, and I, I will never forget that ugly campaign season and the permanent harm it inflicted upon this country, I mentioned in passing the Nazi Steve Bannon. The young man earnestly attempted to correct me. Oh, no. Bannon's no Nazi. Uh, yes, he is. He used to head up Breitbart, and, and so he does now. That site that publishes all that alt-right crap. Breitbart isn't so bad. The alt-right is just a source of a certain kind of conservative opinion. It's good to get all these political points of view out. I then told my young friend that my repulsion to the alt-right was generational. He looked at me with a sincere curiosity. One thing I've learned on this teaching gig is that young people really want to listen to us. We had something that they didn't have. The wisdom of our parents. The wisdom of our parents' generation. I was born in 1955, and one of the first things that I remember looking at was a photo of my father in his World War II United States Army dress uniform. Like all little boys, I looked up to my dad, and one thing that I knew about him very early on was that he was honorably discharged from the United States war effort against Hitler. He used to tell funny stories, depicting himself as a coward, figuring out ways to avoid combat. But they were just funny stories. He showed up for his country, and he was an immigrant that came to the U.S. when he was 17 and was drafted two years later. He gave up four years of his young life to participate in the huge collective fight against Hitler. He was in the Ordnance Corps and spent the war far behind enemy lines. My father wasn't called upon to be particularly heroic. He had those funny war stories. No tales of tragedy or glory. But he was decent. That was the impression that I got of my dad fighting Hitler with those millions of other guys. He was a good man. He stayed on the right side of things. It felt good to know that my dad was good. So it's kind of in my DNA to see Nazism is not in the equation of human goodness. My father introduced me to movies and TV. He loved sports and the, quote, shows. When you're born in 1955 and you watch a lot of movies and TV, you see a lot of images of Nazis as bad guys. Early on, it was action flicks like The Great Escape, but a little later, it was serious message pictures like Judgment at Nuremberg. That particular movie is probably the first place that I heard about the Holocaust. It shocked me. As I got a little older, Mel Brooks taught me a lot about Nazis. I fell in love with his movies. Hilarious. I got the defiance in Mel Brooks' lampooning of Nazis and show business in The Producers. Jewish people suffered a particular brutality at the hands of Nazis, and Brooks' movies hilariously showed that they weren't going to let it ruin the rest of their lives. I admired Mel Brooks' bravery and refusal to accept bitterness. His work made a huge impression on me. When I was growing up, Nazis were deserved social outcasts. I was raised in Rochester, New York. There was a rundown area of town where prostitutes walked the streets and pushers pushed drugs, and Nazi motorcycle gangs hung out in these illegal after-hours clubs. Nobody from my middle-class suburb wanted anything to do with any of those people. There was a guy who lived across the street who was a big shot in the local mafia. Everyone looked down on that guy. He didn't want anything to do with Nazis. The word pariah could have been coined for these losers. You'd have to have a screw loose to want to have anything to do with trash like them. There was a TV show that came on very late at night in the early 1970s, The Joe Pine Show. Joe Pine was a kind of a forerunner of the, the kind of agitated, confrontational talk that we get a lot of in the media today. He was for the Vietnam War. He was generally conservative on most issues, but he was a big booster of labor unions. He was seriously wounded while serving with the Marines in World War II, and after the war, 
he lost part of his leg to a rare form of cancer. Pine had something on his show called The Doc. Extremists of all kinds would appear in this kind of witness stand in the middle of the studio audience, where they literally stood as if they were waiting for a verdict to be rendered upon them. They would offer crackpot views, and Pine would verbally attack them from an elevated desk on a stage 10 yards away. Pine often had Nazis on the show, and the Nazis were booed like World Wrestling Federation villains. I, I had the opportunity to hear Nazis expound upon their ridiculous, crazy, ugly, and disgusting viewpoints on the Joe Pine show. And to hear a World War II veteran eviscerate those viewpoints and the persons that put them forward. Joe Pine, who was a sensationalist and far from admirable in many ways, he was a kind of a disc jockey who got out of control. He taught me what that Nazism was evil, and then its proponents have something wrong with them. Nazis are weird people with sick psychological compulsions. Perverts, really. Joe Pine's sideshow undesirables had the same views of white nationalism and racial superiority as the alt-right movement does today. The individuals of the alt-right movement have the same twisted, sicko tendencies as American Nazis in the 1970s. Today, however, this trash philosophy and the deviant Nazi personality are just part of the world of interesting ideas and minor celebrities for young people to try out online. We have to tell these kids what we think of Nazism and Nazis. We have to tell them our stories of post-war Nazi sightings. We have to tell them more stories in general. Kids like us. They like us much more than they like Breitbart. They only read Breitbart and other stuff like it because they're searching for us. We have to show them how, how we have our Americans, and more importantly, how our parents were Americans. Wisdom is passed down, and we need to pass it down right now. It's an emergency. The young are hungry to connect with us. We have something they never had. The greatest generation raised us. My, my young friend listened to my stories and asked a question. Is Steve Bannon really a racist, or is he just selling the Nazi ideology to make money? What difference does it make, I answered. Either way, he's justifying the horror of deporting two million Mexican undocumented aliens. And that's just one violent crime of mass proportion for starters. Do you realize what a horror show that deportation program would be in its execution? If you don't... Watch Schindler's List. Our national and personal histories are so important right now. The World War II generation is almost gone, of course. We have to tell their stories now. Or we will have to live the lessons of World War II all over again. Or our kids will. Only this next time, America will star in the role of Nazi Germany. And Breitbart and Bannon and Trump will steal young people and manipulate them to be in service of all sorts of perversions, largely because we didn't sit down and talk with our young children. Our descendants are begging to spend time with us. I saw the superb A Quiet Passion at 61, it's nothing new to me. A Quiet Passion is a masterpiece of a film about a great artist, Emily Dickinson, written and directed by a fine artist, Terence Davies, who is 70 years old and working with an urgency to share with the world all that he has seen. Ho-hum. Of course he is. The benign clueless often see art as the province of the young, alternately fierce and beautiful energy released into the world as an outlet for sexually sublimated desire. But for the older artist, 
Creative work has the driving pulse of defiant life, shouting and singing, a few steps ahead of death's shadow. Cynthia Nixon transcends acting. I've seen transcended acting performance before, naturally. She is a perfect actress in this role, deep, insightful, precise, and free, as is the film. Davies led her, led her to a place where she was quite, quite ready to go. Okay, so what really? I've seen people reach their creative peak and be extraordinary before. The supporting roles are perfectly cast. A sequence looks at photo portraits of many of the major players. Emily Dickinson's immediate family morph from, morph from youth to middle age. I may have never seen the transformations natural to the aging characters be portrayed with such wisdom, clarity, and economy. But at my age, I'm beyond awe. I know there's greatness in the world. Emily Dickinson was a soul destined for a life of self-determination. Sure, of course. Character is destiny, and inescapable. Ironically, this free spirit lived in the same home, lovingly and fearfully protected from the adventure of life by her family and primarily her father. Nothing new to me. I've seen the tyranny of the good family that murders what might have been not with possessive envy, but with real concern. Emily Dickinson never married, had very few friends and acquaintances. She was an extraordinary sens extraordinarily sensitive person, of course, and may well have died very young and in extreme violence if she had ventured far from her father's protection. In one scene, the father, an abolitionist, forbids his middle-aged son from fighting in the Civil War. He prohibited Emily in a less explicit way from risking bloody death on the battlefield of life. Emily Dickinson was in exile from the world. She wrote in the middle of the night when everyone who ever lived or would live was sleeping and couldn't hear her. This heroine with so much to say never had the fulfillment of understanding or acknowledgement from another human being or audience. So, many artists aren't recognized in their lifetime. Emily Dickinson's lovers were born after she was gone. Yet, Emily Dickinson was not a poet of self-pity or a painter of loneliness. She experienced each moment of her life to its depths and communicated what she went through in an exquisite way. Big deal. Haven't you ever seen a hero before? Or loved before? Don't you know that life is paradoxical and ironic? Can't you see that a spinster in repressive time and place can be as bold and world-redeeming as Joan of Arc? Cynthia Nixon plays Emily Dixon, Dickinson dying at age 56. It is a clear-eyed death, one of struggle, suffering, and final acceptance. Can't you see that sometimes actors actually take on the virtues of their characters? Emily Dickinson's siblings wept in the moment after she ex exhaled her last breath, and to them, those who had witnessed her extraordinary life, her greatness was apparent. A sister, a brother, and a sister-in-law. Yeah, I didn't know who my father was, not the whole picture, until he died. We are all unrecognized by the world and by those closest to us. Obituary writers and family eulogists for the less celebrated get the final word. It is the life, not the name, that you make. Duh. A Quiet Passion is a great movie. I've seen great movies before. America has always been a death cult and a grand ideal that flourished in small obscure places and times, like late at night in Emily Dickinson's New England home. The death blares loudly 
and the idealistic arc becomes a prominent thing when the end of days are startlingly starting start are startlingly startlingly you know what I mean imminent startlingly startlingly imminent heroes emerge many people suffer and die and the nation narrowly escapes its demise years of sleepy acceptance take what is most dear for granted until the crisis reemerges and the cycle complete, completes itself again. This has been the uh, Rick Blog podcast, uh, Me in America. Part two, America. Uh, you can uh, contact me at the Rick Blog Podcast at gmail.com. I wrote and performed this, and this is copyright 2017, Richard Thomas.